morning. I'm Pastor Craig, if I haven't got to meet you. Uh, we are looking at a wonderful passage today, but before we jump in, I am, I am pretty convinced one of the metaphors that often gets used for the Christian life, Christian discipleship, is it's like learning a new language. And I'm convinced that there are key words, basic words to the Christian life that we don't understand. We have a translation problem from the way that the world uses them, the way that we hear them in our ears, and the way that Scripture actually uses them. An easy example, I think, are are holiness and righteousness. Those are practically uh, insults, right, in our culture. When are they used positively in our culture? Holier than thou is someone who nobody would want to be. If someone has a righteous mission, that's almost derogatory. It's saying, you, oh, you think you're some sort of self-righteous martyr. It's the opposite of what they get used, of how they get used in Scripture. The key ones we're going to look at today, hope and faith, are the same. We don't, I am convinced, have any idea what they really mean if we think that the way the world uses them is what they mean. Faith, I mean, it could be just some general George Michael, you just got to have faith, but you don't know why, and you don't know what reason or what you're actually believing. I remember, I think it was in Macy's, some department store around Christmas, and you walk in, and there's, you know, nice white lights that says, believe. Doesn't that, I mean, I think it's meant to make you feel cozy and at home in the department store so that you will spend more money. Faith? What does faith mean? Hope is the same way. We say hope like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, but I have no idea. Meteorologist tells me it's 50%, so they don't know. I hope there's not traffic on my way to work, but I don't really have any reason to think there won't be. Well, when it comes to Scripture, hope and faith are not used in those ways because they rely upon God. Because they rely upon the trustworthiness of God's promises and what I ultimately want to, want to show us is that it's because God relates to us by grace. By grace. Let's pray. God, we are bombarded with so many images and ideas and concepts, and we do not need any more human or worldly wisdom. So, Lord, we do ask that your spirit would speak now by the power of your word, that you would clear out all the misconceptions and the idols that we have in our heart and in our mind, that we would hear from you and you alone, that you would live up to the promises that we can rely on in Christ. And we pray that he would be glorified. Amen. So we're in the book of Hebrews, and as a reminder, Hebrews is basically one long sermon, uh, 13 chapters, but it is really one long sermon about fixing your eyes on Jesus and enduring, 
until the end. And so one after the other, especially the chapters before where we're at, it's saying Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. He is more supreme than the angels, than Moses, than Joshua, than the priests. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And to endure, for the author of Hebrews, means to have faith. In faith, we have this very famous definition at the start of our passage, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What does that mean? I think it's something close to saying faith possesses what it does not yet have, and it believes what it does not yet see. But before we unpack that a little bit more, I want to do a little clearing out of what it does not mean. Because when we hear the word faith, we think, one, it's opposed to reason. It's irrational. And ever since the Enlightenment, faith versus reason became the conversation. We understand and hear faith as something that is like a blind leap into the dark. Is that what Hebrews is talking about? Is that what faith in God is like? No. It is not a blind leap in the dark. It is not like saying, well, this is dumb, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's not biblical faith. The leap of faith, as far as I know, came from Kierkegaard in the 19th century, who's a guy I love to read, but he used it from the perspective of worldly eyes looking on a person of faith. It looks like it was a blind leap into the dark. But to the Christian, it was not. To the Christian, it is, if anything, the opposite of that. It's the most assured step you can take because it relies on God. Well, it's not opposed to reason. It's opposed to, in Scripture, Paul for Paul, it's often opposed to work. But it's also opposed here, especially, to sight. To what you can claim to have now. And it's not opposed to reason. It's not irrational. It's also not vague. And this is probably the way we use it conversationally. Just have faith. Your car's not going to start. Just have faith. It's so vague. Have faith in what? Why? For what reason? Why should I trust that this thing is going to work? For the author of Hebrews to say it is the conviction of things not seen, that word conviction, it's a legal term. It's like proof or demonstration. You know something that you cannot see. And if we're honest, we do know a lot of things we can't see. And we think we know, at least. And so Westminster, I think, is helpful when it calls it not just faith, but saving faith. The chapter before this in Hebrews calls it the assurance of faith, which to our ears is a contradiction. Do you see how it, we're already on the wrong foot? Assurance of faith for Hebrews gets to the essence of what faith is. But to us, that sounds like a contradiction in terms. How can you be assured of something you just believe? No, it's because it depends upon God. 
And so if we try to keep those things in mind is when we hear faith, that's not what we mean. Not opposed to reason. It's not just some vague, vague thing. I want us to look at these examples because I think they show us, maybe this is helpful. I see it as a kind of rely risk continuum. They show us that what you rely on will determine what you risk. Or what you risk will reveal what you rely on. Thank you, Chris. And so let's look at these examples that the author of Hebrews gives us. He starts off talking about creation, relying. By relying upon the word of God, something that we cannot see, we understand. Even that. We, by faith, we understand even that phrase, I think. It's hard for us to really grasp. But by faith, we understand. Faith seeks understanding, gives us more to understand. We cannot see from the visible things around us in creation that it was created by something invisible. But that is what faith tells us. It simply relies upon the word of God. Then he goes into Abel and Enoch, which we don't have a whole lot of detail about what's going on here other than simply a trust in God's character, that he rewards those who seek him, that he rewards those who trust him. And so they rely on that despite what they can see. Enoch even pleases God because of that. But I want to spend uh, more time on Noah and Abraham. Noah and Abraham. Noah it's such a common story, and we have pictures about the ark, and it's, it sounds like a kid's story, but it's really an amazing story. And just this one verse that we're told here about Noah shows us a lot. That's simply from a revelation from God. Noah builds an ark in the middle of the desert. Have you ever thought about that? They, he wasn't going to tow it with his four-by or truck to the sea. He built an ark in the middle of the desert. So he takes this bold action, and in verse 7, it says, by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I had never noticed that phrase, but it reminded me of Romans 3 when Paul is talking about how the whole world, before the law of God, standing before the holiness of God, the whole world is condemned, is held accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And so Jesus is a better Noah, because Noah condemned the world in that way in the Genesis story, by showing his faith in God who destroyed the world that was caught up in sin. Jesus did that even better. And what I mean by that is he is perfectly righteous, perfectly condemning the world, if you think about what's going on on the cross. Because on the cross we see that when humanity meets God, perfect God in human form, what do we do? We slaughter him. 
we condemn him. Because to worldly eyes, the most obvious truth looking at the cross is to say, this guy is a loser, he is a traitor, he is a rebel, clearly does not have God on his side. That's the obvious truth to the world's eyes. But to the eyes of faith, what do you see on the cross? You see not only our condemnation because of that, you see God's perfect love, most clearly manifested when it seems like it's most hidden. And so theologians talk about the hiddenness of God in the cross. A conviction of things not seen. That's what we should have when we look at the cross. There is nothing worldly or in our human power that should say, look at the cross. That's God winning. But by faith, we can call that Good Friday. By faith, we can say with Colossians 2 that on the cross, he put his enemies to open shame and triumphed over them. Noah was willing to risk the condemnation of the world. He was willing to risk this reputation that he would have had. What are we willing to risk for this? What do we rely upon? Do we rely upon this sort of hiddenness of God or ourselves? And so we turn to Abraham. Abraham, too, receives revelation from God. And he does something that should also surprise us. He leaves his homeland and his country. And I love, I had us read to verse 4 because it, it says, this is what happened. And Abraham went. It was simple obedience. He was 75 years old. And he still did it. Abraham went. But Abraham, too, is not just going into some place of unknowing, irrational, blind darkness. Did you see that? It says he, knows, he doesn't know where he's going, but it's not irrational. It's not vague. He's going to the city that has foundations. Not better foundations, not a little more reliable foundations. Seems like the assumption is God's city is the only one that has foundations. That's where he's going. Abraham's city, our city, America does not have foundations. It too will fall. Abraham is looking for the foundation, the foundational city that God is the builder of. So it's not irrational, and it's really only risky to worldly eyes. And so I, I, I say risky faith, what do you risk? But I think at the end we should actually see that there's no risk at all to depend upon the word of God. If anything, it's a risk not to. So he's going to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then he says, therefore from one man, this is uh, verse 12, 
Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. From one man as good as dead, he brings the blessing of the entire covenant people that goes global eventually through Christ. So what do we think? Jesus, not only the better Noah, he is the better Abraham. Life out of death. It was apparent death in Abraham. 75 years old, he leaves his town. Eventually he's going to have a kid with Sarah, who apparently was barren. Life out of apparent death with Abraham and Sarah. Life out of real death. Eternal life out of real death in Jesus. There was, again, no worldly human reason to think that the death of Jesus would be the source of eternal life. And yet that is what we have. It's as if God wants to clear out every reason we have to rely on ourselves and our sight, and what we think we have now. He wants to clear that out as reliable so that we will rely upon him alone. That's why I think it's connected to grace. Because if you, if you rely on other things, and many of us are, we're, we're all very good at relying on many things. We're like polytheists, right? We have many gods and many idols, and maybe the God of the Bible is one of them. He wants to clear all of those things out to say, if you really know who I am, you will want to rely on me and me alone, and that is not risky. It feels risky. It seems risky. But it's not. And so Abraham risks the comforts of his family, the comforts of his homeland, to live as strangers and exiles, living in tents. And then we have this commendation at the end. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. It's a beautiful commendation. So let's, let's, let's try to um, bring this home a little bit. All right. One question I want to ask is, why is this so hard? And then I want to ask, if we were to rely on God, what exactly does he promise? Does he, he doesn't give us the same sorts of promises as he does to Noah and Abraham, right? All right, so first, why is this so hard? I think it's, in general, it's pretty obvious. We are just so at home in this world. We don't want to live in tents, right? We don't want to live in stran- like strangers and exiles, we want to have a good home. And I'm not just talking about home, your home, where you physically live, although it's included. We have so much we think we can rely upon in this world. Look at all the things we can do. Look at all the diseases we can heal. Look at all, these, all of these things that we think are reliable. But when you read Scripture, and, it, and the fact is it's obvious to us that ultimately none of this is reliable. 
And we all know this, right? Death and taxes are the two things we know we'll get. We know it's not reliable. Psalm 49, 50, or 20, I just came across it this week, but there's hundreds of others in Scripture that I could quote. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. We know that. I think we know that at a very obvious level. But we aren't willing to live like it. We aren't willing to realize that if there is a scale of reliability, and you have God on one side and everything else on the other, we're not quite sure who will win out. We're not quite sure what, what will we really trust. To God, that's offensive. To God, that's foolish, too. It's totally foolish to think that anything can compare to the reliability and the trustworthiness of God. And so we do need to ask, what is it that you have, quote unquote, risked, staked upon God and God alone? What mature missional decision have you made that is actually risking actually putting it at stake. But again, I want us to remember that this all centers around the fact that God relates to us by grace. Everything else, every religion, every philosophy, every way we normally think, depends at the end of the day at some, on some type of performance, some type of works righteousness. But if God really is who he says he is, and our sin really is as gross and prevalent as Scripture tells us. We need, and it is best for us, to rely on God alone. And from God's perspective, how's he going to get you to do that? He can't keep just buttressing what you can see. Because you're just going to rely on those things. Right? That's why the prosperity gospel is so mistaken. It's so confused. That if you think this is going to get you to trust God, it's just going to get you to trust what you're getting. And so the cross, the hiddenness of God in the cross is the graciousness of God in the cross. It's saying that if you want real life, you say you want real life, you say you want the living water that God can provide. Stop going to all the other wells. He has to show us his own light through darkness. He has to show us that the resurrection of a new world will only come through the crucifixion of the old. That's why it's so hard for us, because we don't want to learn that lesson. We don't want to trust God. We want to trust our sight, what we have. But if we were to rely upon God, it is important to realize what, in fact, God promises and what he does not. 
He does not promise a lot what the prosperity gospel says. And our passage is pretty clear. This is talking about the eternal city, the land that Abraham and Noah were looking at from afar that they didn't have. The argument of Hebrews, in many ways, can be summarized as Jesus, this supreme king and priest, is like our forerunner who has gone ahead to the new world and the new age, to heaven, and we are connected to him. So don't drift away. Don't lose context. Endure because of what you have in store. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism in 38 says it beautifully and succinctly at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's also what Jesus got and is doing right now. Did you catch that? Raised up in glory. That's what he got on the resurrection. Openly acquitted and acknowledged in the day of judgment. That's what the resurrection is. Jesus is being acquitted, saying sin has been paid for. And is perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God. That is our inheritance. If you are, in fact, a believer. If you are connected to Christ, you will share in what he has now by sight. Faith connects us to what he has by sight. In this life, the Shorter Catechism, two questions above that, gives us what we can rely upon in this life. That's great for then. What about now? And I've quoted this several times. Hopefully you guys, well, whatever. You probably don't remember. There's five things that he says you can count on that God promises for believers in this life that flow from justification, adoption, sanctification. And these are the promises, I think, that we can take to the bank. This is what we can rely on, all right? It is assurance of God's love. Assurance of it. That, yes, we know what we're going to get at the resurrection. Now we can have assurance of God's love. And if we realize who God is, what we did to him as enemies, that's a big deal. The second one is peace of conscience. A Christian shouldn't have a guilty conscience. Maybe God's going to use that guilty conscience to show you your sin, but ultimately we have been cleansed, we have been washed from a guilty conscience. Our conscience is peaceful. There's joy in the Holy Ghost which means a supernatural, God-given joy, contentment, satisfaction that you are in the hands of God regardless of the suffering that you are enduring, the circumstances that you are in, which is why Paul can say, rejoice always. So assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, your experience of grace, is going to eventually, over the long haul, increase. It gets better. 
and then perseverance to the end. Because, precisely, because you are connected to Christ, he's not going to let you go. He stayed on the cross. Nothing else, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And so I think that is an incredible foundation that we can rely on and on which we then can risk everything else. Right? If we have that, what else do we need? And sometimes, we saw in Noah and Abraham, sometimes God chooses for you, and sometimes with them, they had to choose what they were going to risk. So they ended up choosing, okay, God, I will choose to risk my family or my comforts or my homeland, and I will go. Other times we're not given the choice. Other times God chooses for us, and then we have to see if we're going to rely upon God. Does that make sense? Sometimes you're in a circumstance that you didn't choose. And I was uh, talking with a student this week, and I was sharing with them a little bit about my experience this past year with what I think is a situation that God chose that I did not want, which is our divorce. And I think it has been incredible, regardless of the fact that God hates divorce, that it was unjust, in my understanding. And I was trying to say to the student that I think it was incredible for God to choose that. I didn't have a choice in it. But then to show me how reliable God is. And the student asked, but, but if you only have God, is that enough? That's kind of sad, isn't it? If the only thing you have in life is your relationship to God, isn't that kind of pathetic? And I said, no. No. It's the opposite. You're asking the wrong question. If all you have is this world, that's pathetic. If all you have is what you can rely on, of, is on what you can see, that's pathetic. There is nothing that you can see that is reliable. And so C.S. Lewis does such a great job in so many different places about saying, don't settle. God is not saying your passions are too strong. He's saying they're directed at the wrong thing. We are far too easily pleased, he says, in the weight of glory. God doesn't say, simmer down. You have all these desires and passions. Those aren't going to be met. He's saying they will be met when they are purified and geared towards the right thing. You don't have to settle because there is a city with foundations. And so all of these unmet desires and passions that we put on unreliable things, like sex and drink and ambition, he says, why in the world would you expect those things to satisfy you? Why in the world would you rely on those things? 
when infinite joy is offered to you. We don't have to settle. We need to wake up from the evil enchantment, he says, of worldliness. To realize that God is not ashamed to call us his people. And to realize that in Christ, we actually, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Paul gives this list of how he is commended and it's suffering and it's He's appearing to suffer and he's appearing to die and he's appearing to be poor. And then he ends it by saying, I don't seem to have anything. I have nothing. And yet I possess everything. Everything. Christ is that good. God is that. His promises are that reliable. I hope you can know that and want to explore that more. Let's pray. Father, the grace that you freely give us in Christ is overwhelming. It is perfect and beautiful. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would give us that faith to rely on you trust on you, to see that to risk you is the most foolish thing, but to risk everything else is wise and good, because you alone are trustworthy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.